0: I'm going to read, we're in Ephesians 4, uh, the transition in this book uh, from doctrine to now duty of a Christian, uh, how we are to walk, how we are to live out in this new life that we have. I'm going to read 1 to 6, and then I'm going to pray for us. So let's, uh, let's look, Ephesians 1 to 6, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come and hear the work of your hand in the lives of the Israelites through the book of Psalms, or the life of David, as we hear the work of your hand in our lives through uh, the protection of John and Hayden and Din, through the blessing of new birth and the celebration of, of a family. In the addition to their family, for the safety and and recovery of DIM in this time, the mm. celebration of new life in Stu's friend. Mm. Lord, we praise you for these divine acts, how you have been working in our midst. Mm. Lord, as we come to your word, we need your spirit. Uh, we are called to rejoice in our weakness, and Lord, our weakness is that we are unable to comprehend the divine things of you, which is written down in your Word. Lord, I am unable to teach well without your Spirit. So, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would be among us in our homes as we gather. Lord, we feel strengthened in our inner being, Mm -hmm. strengthened to comprehend with all the saints, each and every one of us, the love that you have for us, Mm -hmm. the breadth, length, height, and depth. And Lord, we just ask you this morning that your name would be glorified through your word being taught, your word being learned, and then, Lord, let it, let it be applied to our life so that so that we walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church the group of people that gather under the name of Jesus will never be destroyed. And you can guarantee throughout history many, many people have tried to destroy it. What we see in this letter is a letter written to a church that we cannot just read on its own, but we should read with the shadow of Revelation 2 over the top of it. If you don't know Revelation 2, I encourage you to go and read it. Jesus sends seven letters to churches, warning them, mostly warning or commending them of good deeds, but also condemning them of areas where they have failed. This Ephesian church has failed in that they have lost their first love. He commends them that they've kept their doctrines, that they know God, they know his his truths, but they've lost their first love. We don't know what happened to the Ephesian church, but I know it's not there today. Maybe they never came back to their first love. Maybe they never did come to repentance and Jesus decided to take away their lampstand. As we look at the church and see that although the Ephesian church failed and is not there today or never came to repentance or maybe it was just their time to end, we know that that is only one part of the church. and today. Still, all around the world, in places where the gospel is persecuted, people still gather in the name of Jesus. They still worship his name. And as we look past and back 2,000 years ago, we'll see that persecution of the church by the Jews and the Romans in the early days didn't hinder the growth of the church. In fact, it exploded. Nothing has changed today. Where persecution exists, the church thrives all the more. China, we see the fastest-growing church in the world. In the Middle East, we're seeing Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ, growing faster than America or Australia or England. Where the gospel is under attack externally, we see the church bound together in unity and growing all the more. The greatest risk for destruction of the church is not external people. It's not our government. It's not other religions, it's you and me. The danger of the church being destroyed today is what will happen internally, is what will happen to, is what will happen when we lose sight of who we actually are in Christ. We are the ones that could rip apart the church. We are the ones who could lose focus of why we actually exist and what, the point in being here is, and we've seen it throughout history, church split after church split, so many people have been through it. I myself have been a part of three different denominations, three different churches, and have seen each one of those churches go through a church split. At the last one that I was a part of, the as a youth pastor, I came so close to burnout, or probably was burnt out, I remember sitting at home on a Sunday morning watching the movie Gladiator rather than going to church. I could live, we lived next door to the church. I could hear them singing, but there was nothing inside of me that wanted to be there because what I heard or what I saw from the people from Monday to Saturday were lies, deceit and arguments over trivial little things. The church had lost sight of why they exist. And in so doing, went from a church of five hundred people to fifty. What do we need to remember? What do we need to keep our eyes on as we realize why does the church exist? The church exists to glorify Christ. The church exists for us to grow in our knowledge of Christ and to grow to be like Christ. The church exists to make Christ known. And if we could summarise these into other terms that we know from the Bible, that would be worship. The church exists to worship, to glorify, to enjoy God. Discipleship means to grow in the knowledge of Christ and to become like Christ. And evangelism is simply making Christ known. As I read Ephesians and as I've studied it over the last Six months, I think this is the simplicity of what it means to be the church. Enjoying God, becoming like Christ, and making Christ known. You're going to hear this a lot over the next months, and probably just while ever our church exists. Discipleship, evangelism, and worship are the very reasons we exist, and it's the duty of the church to continue in that. So when we unpack this passage, we will see that these are uh, that the first place that Paul wants us to look to is unity. Unity. How do we stay as one? How do we keep uh, focused on the reason we exist? So let's unpack verse by verse as we normally do, starting in verse one. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul once again uses this I therefore statement to incorporate all that he has taught beforehand, the mysteries of the gospel, the blessings that we have in the heavenly places. And now he's really focusing in on this chapter 3. And I just want to read it to you and point out just one or two verses, one verse here, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery, speaking of the mystery of the gospel, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Mm -hmm. This is the therefore that he wants us to understand. Because of this, because of the mystery of the gospel binding, both Jew and Gentile together is uh, the reason he is now urging us to live in a matter worthy of our gospel. Worthy of our calling, sir What he wants us to understand is that the gospel has, div- has crossed race. The gospel has crossed education status. The gospel has crossed over uh, our location of living. And he's going to emphasize that if you are in Christ, if you are a child of God from chapter 1, if you have been chosen to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world, then you no longer hold to who you once were. Hold to where you live hold to what race you come from, hold to your education system anymore. You hold to the fact that you're a child of God. And he urges us that if we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, we are putting that behind us and we are living a new life in Christ. He goes on to use this statement he said before, a prisoner for the Lord. So we know that Paul's in jail at the moment and he's writing from jail. So he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. The reason he says about being a prisoner is he's using it to encourage us as believers. He's saying, I'm walking in a manner worthy of the calling and it's put me in jail, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter that it's costly because our home is not here on this earth, but our home is with Christ. We're citizens of a new place. We're citizens of a new city, the city of God. So he urges us with just this simple little statement that even if it costs you your life, even if it costs you your freedom, you have far more. You have so much more to hope in. And he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. What he means means by walk is to conduct yourself. To conduct yourself a certain way, and the way he wants us to to conduct ourselves is to is to it uh, is in a matter worthy of the calling to which we've been called. When we look at Ephesians one, particularly Ephesians one, or, or even Ephesians two, we have this gospel that is explained to us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. We've been adopted as children. We have an inheritance a bit later on. These are our new identities. Now, we can go off and live in our flesh, but if we have the spirit, we're going to live in this tension and be torn and probably never find fulfillment in the flesh, we will never find fulfillment in the flesh, and the things that we used to enjoy no longer we enjoy. So he's saying, because of now who you are, because you are a child of God, because he has made you holy and blameless, that is your status in heaven, holy and blameless, because you have an inheritance waiting for you, and the Holy Spirit is the seal of that. Walk in a matter, in a in a in a manner worthy of that. Walk in a way that displays that. Conduct your way of life so that people say, "There's something about them. They walk like they don't belong here." They don't value their bloodline or their education status or their race or the place of location that they live. They value something more. To conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of this takes thought. We need to think about it. What does it mean? What does it look like to live as someone who has an inheritance outside of this world? What does it mean to live as a child of God? in the midst of this time, and that turns into discipleship. We work out how to do that, how to become more like Christ. Of course, the simple explanation for that is that we value the things of this earth less than we value the things of heaven. So the urge is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We're going into duty as a Christian. How do we live this out? We've got good doctrine now. We've got a good foundation to live from. We've got a new identity here. The mystery is of the gospel, that we brought Jew and Gentile together. So we're putting aside our past. We're a new creation, a new race. Location doesn't matter. doesn't matter where we live, where we're educated, whether we're rich or poor. We've got a new way to live. We have to remember that we were born again and we have put to death the old life and we're living In the new life. So that means that if we're working towards holiness, we've probably got our eyes in the wrong place. To work towards holiness means we don't believe that we're already holy. Now, I know that's hard to understand at times because I don't feel holy at all. I've got a lot of impurity in me. Every day I wake up and wonder why I dreamt those dreams or thought those thoughts or treated someone that way, but the beauty of the gospel is that we are labelled holy and blameless in heaven. It's a legal status before God. And if that's a legal status before God, we don't need to strive to be holy. We are holy, so we live out of that new identity. That changes the way we think. It it makes the Christian say, I have been made holy, therefore I'm going to strive all the more to walk in this, and when I'm not sufficient, when I don't live it out, I fall on my knees before the one who is holy. It changes our repentance. What Paul was praying for in us last week in that passage that we looked at was that we would have the strength to comprehend these things, to comprehend the love that God, that Christ has for us. And when we comprehend the love that Christ has for us, we no longer need to beat ourselves up over sin, or isolate ourselves from the church, or think we're less than other people in the church. No, we come all the more and know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I need to learn this. So often I live in this place of guilt and shame, and we cannot live in that place as a Christian. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to know we are holy and blameless in heaven, which means the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. Paul doesn't leave us without specific characteristics of what this would look like. In verse two, he goes on to explain them. If we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling, we put on, or withal, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul takes us to the characteristics that make us, uh, characteristics that fulfill this walk, that makes us see the walk. And, of course, we can just jump straight to 1 John 2, 6, where it tells us that those who abide in him, those who abide in Jesus, must walk the same way he walked. That's how, That's why we have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did Jesus walk? How did he live? He is the only man to fulfill the law. So we look at him, we think about how he walked, and if we are in Christ, we won't walk like that. We want to imitate him. And he gives us the characteristics of him. How how better to sum Jesus up than he was humble, he was gentle, he was patient, and he fared with everyone with love. That is a great summary of his characteristics while he lived on earth. It's the first duty of the people in Christ, the church. And the most important is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling that brings unity to the church, that brings unity to the church. We see that in verse 4, he will go on to say that this is about unity. The very purpose of him saying Firstly, the reason I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, the reason I want you to put on humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love is so that the church is one. Not even that the world may know yet, but that the church is one. That comes, we will see that, we'll see that unfold. But firstly, the most important is that the church is bound together. This is the problem with parachurch. They take one aspect of the Christian ministry whether it's serving the poor or evangelizing the lost and they take it away from the church and instantly create disunity. We need unity in the church. It's where he starts. We want to be bound together. The reason he wants us to work in it walk in the manner of our calling is because we are one nation under one God. We are one people. And will be presented as one bride to him. So let's first think about an inward focus. We're looking inward into our church, how we can put on these characteristics. So let's unpack these characteristics here. Humility. The opposite of humility is clearly pride. And pride is our greatest enemy. It's the sin that will be with us till the day we die. If there's a person in this world that has said, I have conquered pride, they are foolish. Pride is behind every sin. Every action that is self-centered or self-focused, pride is there. Pride is the silent killer in many people's lives. And we are so good at disguising pride. We have a great ability to cover pride up and make it seem like we are quite humble people. Pride is the reason many of us don't want to serve the poor or the broken. Pride is the reason we stand there stubbornly unwilling to repent. Pride is often the reason we don't go out seeking forgiveness when we've hurt someone. And pride is often the reason we say, I don't deserve God's grace. The reason we say that in pride is because we think our sin is greater than his sacrifice. And that elevates us above Christ. It says we're worth more than Christ's death, or our sin was too great for him to pay for. Pride is what is at the heart of every church breakdown. An unwillingness to say I was wrong. An unwillingness to say, I can serve here. Pride will stop you from discipleship and evangelism and eventually worship. So, of course, the characteristic that Jesus most perfectly summed up and demonstrated was humility. And this was countercultural at the time. And although it's, people love humility today, I still think there's an emphasis on pride. But what would take place in the Roman and the Greek uh, empires was that you, you elevated yourself, you, you raised yourself up, you wanted to be a statue on point. So, your legacy would last. Pride was considered a virtue that was uh, attractive and loving. There's a great book by John Dixon who wrote uh, on humility and how it was Jesus who changed uh, humility to be an attractive quality. It's called Humilitas. It's worth having a look at. A study and a research into how humility became an attractive quality and it happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth. Pride is still today, I think, a quality that we love. Why is it that in many children we want to be known, remembered or famous or successful? Maybe not just in children, but in adults as well. That's pride in us. That Jesus teaches something else and demonstrates something else, that we would serve and be the servant of all not only servant, he uses slave of the least of these. Think about Jesus. Equal with the Father, with the glory he's known for all eternity, comes down in a human body with human weaknesses, never known tiredness, never known uh, temptation. And he experiences that without using his power to overcome it. This is remarkable. It's remarkable to think that Jesus, the creator of the world, would come down and serve people, be a servant. He washes his disciples' feet. The most humbling of jobs Jobs to do. So in our environment at church, as we look internally, as we start to analyze our own lives, and and don't go sitting there thinking about the person next to you or the person that, that you're that you've had a problem with recently, how are you living in humility? Because the problem we have in churches and the reason breakdown and disunity happens is we're always sitting there going, well, that person needs to hear this. No, you need to hear this. You need to hear this today about humility. How are you being a servant and a slave to the least of these? We're thinking inwardly. We're thinking in church at the moment. How are you lowering yourself, thinking of yourself less? Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less and having eyes to see the least and the last and noticing the needs of others above your own. Humility is the first one. Gentleness. Gentleness almost surprises me. Probably because I'm not gentle and need to hear this the most. Gentleness could also mean uh, meekness, and some translations would use the word meekness. Now, the world, if you looked up these in a, in, a, in a dictionary, you'd find that meekness means timid, to be timid. This is not the biblical view of meekness, and it's a, it's a discipline of ours that when you are studying the Scriptures and we come across a word that's used a lot in Scripture, don't go to a dictionary. You'll get a wrong definition. See how the Bible defines it. Look through those passages. There's plenty of apps out there that will help you find where all the words are, are placed in, in, in different passages and you can work out what does the Bible define this word as. So meekness. The Bible uses this word of it comes from taming an animal. So think of breaking in a horse. The horse has power and wildness and passion and it kicks its legs all over the place and it's aggressive but then they break it in they tame it they uh they bring it under control so that they can ride the horse and this now horse is meek this horse is now tamed it still has its power it still has its passion but it's under control. That power is now under control. So when we look at meekness or gentleness in the Bible, we're looking at a power and a passion that is under control, particularly under the control of God. Now, Jesus was perfect at this. He had all the power of God. He was God. Even when he was a human, he was God. He had divine characteristics. He could at any moment do anything for himself. We see that in the desert when he's tempted. Satan knows very well that he could have made bread from rocks or called a legion of angels to save himself, but Jesus never used his power for himself. Jesus always used his power for other people or for the will of the Father to fulfill God's plan. The greatest greatest, uh, picture of this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has there been praying, his disciples keep falling asleep. The guards come to arrest him with swords and clubs and Peter goes to chop off the guard's ear or the guard's servant's ear. And Jesus says, don't fight. Don't you know I can call a legion of angels with me? You know I can call a legion of angels with me, to me, to fight for me. Jesus had power, all the power under control. So to be gentle and meek is to not to show off your power, not to flex your muscles at every opportunity, but rather to have it under control. Mm -hmm. Jesus showed his power when he threw the tables in the temple. There is a time for righteous anger. There is a time to display strength and passion. But there's also times when we should be kind and gentle and slow, allowing people to grow in that patience, which is why it leads us to the next one, patience. Without patience, the Christian life will be one of great pain and uneasiness. Praise God it is a fruit of the Spirit. Praise God that in our world of mess, He gives us the spirits so that we may grow in patience. Why is patience so important for a Christian? Why is, does it make us? Uh, why would it? If we lack patience, why would our life be of great pain and unease? Because sanctification takes your whole life. Sanctification takes your whole life. I will never forget and love it, and will quote it till the day I die. Grace's grin when she was 92, almost about to pass away, said how much she loved the God had worked in her life but still longed for more sanctification to take place. Mm-hmm. A godly woman who was grieved, grieved at 92 years old of the pain of her sin that still remained. If you are an impatient person, the fight for joy in the law, the fight against the flesh is going to become unbearable. We need to be patient. Now, we need to be patient with one another because we may tolerate our own weaknesses, but often we get over tolerating others. Now, this goes back and forth in our life. Of course, there's times when we're feeling pretty down on ourselves because we can't overcome a certain sin or many sins. But it's often that we will look to other people. As I said before, if it's, you, you need to be looking at yourself when we're hearing messages or sitting in the Word. We're not looking to see who this is for. We're looking to see uh, how it applies to our own life. If you lack patience, you're going to struggle to ever disciple anyone. You're going to struggle to ever be able to endure with people. Uh, found this de- definition on patience through uh, a, a commentator on this passage. Patience is a person who experiences, a patient person is one who experiences ne- negative circumstances but never gives into them. Never gives into them. So a patient person can go through hard times, suffering, trial the guilt of sin, the suffering under sin, discipleship with someone, and they endure through it and serve through it. If you lack patience, you're going to give up on the church. You're going to give up on the church because you're going to get over dealing with people's mess. If the church is not messy, we're being fake. If the church is not messy, we're not being real with one another because I'm a mess and you're a mess. And I need you to be patient with me as I make mistakes and stumble and fall over my words and and offend you and hurt you and and, and I'm going to be patient with you as you go through that. The church is a place of sinners on a path of holiness. Yes, we are labelled holy in heaven and we're pursuing holiness and in the midst of that, we're going to get hurt. Now, if you don't have patience, yes, discipleship is going to be hard, but evangelism will be impossible. The problem with our evangelism today, making Jesus known in, in, in church, uh, throughout the church around the world, the problem with our evangelism today is we're always looking for the quick fix. It once worked. God for whatever reason, he decided wanted to bring his glory and make it known through rallies by Billy Graham and bringing people into the church of Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards. It did work, and that was God's design at that time. But maybe it was his plan because the church wasn't actually going out. When we look at the book of Acts, we see so clearly that he sends us out into the world to preach the gospel. We can't sit back and say, I'll just keep inviting my friends here so that the preacher can preach the gospel. No, it's our obligation to go out and preach. And if we don't have patience, we will give up so easily because preaching requires repetitive, repetitive conversations with the same people teaching the same things over and over again, for five years, as Stu said, or seven years, or ten years. I've heard pastors who have been in church plants who are still part of a core team of five or ten, and they've been going for 11 years and haven't seen a single convert. Would you stick around in that situation? Would I stick around? It grieves me in my heart that I don't know if I would be faithful in it. So I pray for patience. Patience, so that I can be a servant and a slave to all. Patience, so that I can be good at discipling. And this is all bound together in love. Love, we spoke about last week, being rooted and grounded in a giving love, a love that is a matter of the will. So it's not warm, it's not warm emotions, it's not feelings of emotions, but rather a matter of choice. We're choosing to love this person. Love happens naturally in the beginning, but after a while, we need to fight for it. And sometimes it doesn't just happen naturally. The reason we give up on people in the church is because we think that it should just automatic. We should just automatically love them. So we see Paul praying in that prayer for the church to. Be rooted and grounded in love to know the breadth, length, height and depth of Christ's love so that we can bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. And when we lose sight of this, the church will go into disunity. When we put aside these characteristics, the church will fall apart. Because what it will turn from is about being about God and into being about us. The church always falls apart when we go from being about God to being about us. And we see this when people start coming and looking for their own needs to be met. I need this sort of program. I want this sort of thing. Rather than saying, I can serve in this way. I can serve in a ministry to the homeless. I can serve in a ministry to parents. I can serve in a ministry to the broken, whatever it may be. Rather than saying, I need and I want and not doing anything about it, you're part of the body, so let's go and do what we're meant to do and humble ourselves and serve. The church is primarily me. The church is primarily and always about God. Enjoying God, worship, becoming like Christ, discipleship, making Christ known, evangelism. How can you serve in these areas? We're all called to them. All of us are called to them. How are you going to do it? Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to put on these things, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and to bring about peace and unity. So to have unity in the bond of peace, and it's by the Spirit. So we have the Spirit, so there should be a bond of peace. This is what he is pushing for. This is the, uh, the the main reason he is writing at the moment. The duty of a Christian is to strive for unity. And this is where we start. As a church, we need to be bound together. As a church, we need to have close connections in order that the gospel may be seen outwardly. John 17, 21 to 23 is just an incredible prayer of the Lord. It says, the glory that you, Father, have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. That we may become, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you've sent me and loved me, even as I as I even as you loved me. This is the prayer of Jesus. The heart Of Jesus. He wants us to be one. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. The glory that the Father and the Son and the Spirit sharing is a oneness, a unity of perfect harmony, where there is equality and submission. A, A line that the world says doesn't go together. But Jesus, the creator of the world, the designer of all things, says equality and submission go perfectly together. Because if there's equality, there can be a humility in that place to submit and trust the people there. That's, that's what submission is. We know that person so well that we trust them. We know their characters. We know their intentions behind it, so we trust them. That's why a wife should be able to submit to a husband because she sees that it's out of love. It's out of love. It's out of a character of love. So the emphasis that Paul is really laying on for us here that that we need to really grasp hold of is that we first and foremost must strive to be one so that we would have unity and so that the world would know. That is what Jesus prays for, so that the world may know that you have sent me. How will the world know that he has been sent? Because there's this new group of people who should not hang out, who should not be relating to one another, who should not be friends or should not be forgiving one another, but they do. They overcome it. They bear with one another in love. It doesn't make sense to the world. It shouldn't make sense to the world. Why has the church come to a place of this attitude of trying to make sense to the world. It's not meant to make sense to the world. We're not meant to be inclusive. We're not meant to be this place where it's normal for people to come to church. It should be uncomfortable for the unbeliever. What should draw them in, what should confuse them, is why we care so much for one another, is why we want to strive and overcome difficulties. Which is why we need to look at this bond of peace. A peacemaker. This last characteristic that I think is really important to to define and understand clearly. A peacemaker is not someone who brushes things under the rug. A peacemaker is not someone who doesn't want to make trouble or waste. Now there's a difference between being quarrelsome and being and being a, a person who corrects in love now if you're a, a person who hates all controversy you're gonna struggle to ever rebuke or correct someone a peacemaker is not someone who doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings we sometimes need to hurt people's feelings to correct them we see this so clearly when our Lord teaches on reconciliation for brothers and sisters in Matthew 18, 15. A peacemaker is someone who puts on the characteristics of Jesus, humility, gentleness, patience, bears with one another in love and confronts a brother and sister when they see them sinning or hear them sinning or have been harmed by them. We call it correction and rebuke. Matthew 18, 15 says to, If you see your brother sinning, go to him one to one. A peacemaker is someone who fulfills this scripture, who puts these things on, goes to their brother and says, Brother, sister, I saw you do this, or you did this to me. I want to walk with you as you deal with this. There's no condemnation for you, there's only forgiveness. I love you and care for you. That's why I want to walk with you. I'm going to be patient with you. If this takes you a year, two years, ten years, I'm with you till you feel like you've overcome this. That is a peacemaker. Church feels like, in many places, that we rarely want to call out sin. And it makes no sense. Because if we live in Ephesians 1 to 3, we know, that we are labelled holy and blameless in heaven and that nothing can take us from it. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. Therefore, sin can be called out all day long and forgiven for all day long. Grace covers a multitude of sin. So the church should be the most open place, the most open place in the world. When things are covered up, when things are ignored, that's when bitterness, gossip and slander come in and disunity is found when things are dealt with in a biblical way, with humility, gentleness, patience and love, we find a church that will have a deep sense of unity, a deep sense of unity. Don't hate controversy. Don't hate hard conversations. Don't hate conflict. It's not bad in the Christian world to deal with the hard things. So I encourage you build relationships in the church and beg them. Beg your friends, beg your brother and sister to rebuke and correct you. We have a culture that does not like to do it, so we need to be asked to do it. So if you want to grow, if you want to see growth in your life, find people in the church, many people, not just one, many different people and say, please rebuke me, please correct me. I need to be torn open so I can see stuff that I can't see. now we get in verse 4 to 6, a pretty big hit from Paul that says we have no choice but to be one. If we're not one, he will take away our lampstand, which is the image Christ gives in Revelation 2. If we are not one, Jesus will take away the church from us. Now that may look different. There are many churches around us that call themselves churches that are not churches today. And you can tell because they have left the Bible behind. They may preach from a verse here or there or take out some nice encouraging messages, but they do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are no longer a church and are not recognized as one in heaven. Verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to you, your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the weight that Paul wants to put on him, and he's going back to doctrine to teach us this, that there is one spirit that binds us together as one body, There is not many bodies, not many different bodies going about their different things. There is one true body, and the Spirit has formed that one true body by calling us and convicting us of sin, who points us to our Lord who saved us. One Lord, one mediator, through one faith. We only have one option, to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, to repent and believe in Him. There is no other way to be saved. So our faith, our one faith, is in the word, Jesus Christ, the word that comes from him. And we have one baptism. We have one new life. And we have our image of that in our physical baptism of going under the water and being raised to life. we died to our old self. We are made new in Christ. And we have one God and Father. What's he saying here? He's saying, can't you see that God has a one focused plan? God is is, is focusing one, uh, on one thing. And it's about him and his salvation plan to bring glory to God, the fullness of God, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see them broken up here and in their work. But they're all working to one cause, the unity of the church and the glorification of God, in his fullness, the triune God. The spirit bringing about this body and blending Jew and Gentile and slave and free and rich and poor and men and women. We have to be so, so careful today in our life of becoming disconnected with one another over trivial things that no longer matter. Don't separate yourself. And I I have been in danger of this in the past, of people that are more intellectual than you. I thought I didn't belong in the church because all pastors had masters at uni. And I could never do that. Don't separate yourself from the church because you think you're poorer or you're from a different area or you're from a different race. It doesn't matter anymore. You're no longer that. You're one in Christ. You're saved by the same Spirit. You have the same faith in the same Lord. You have the same baptism and you have the same Father who is over all and through all. So we put to death that and we don't let those thoughts come to our mind and we fight against those thoughts through the power of the Holy Spirit, reminding us of passages like Ephesians 3. And we go on and put on humility and patience and gentleness and love by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we strive day in and day out to maintain that unity. God is one and he has one church. The moment there is a hint of division in our church, gospel church here, we have to come back and say, why am I here? What am I called to? We have to put on Christ. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. At the moment, COVID has meant that we aren't really hanging out much. It's easy to get along over Zoom. It's hard to offend. Guess we could say some hurtful things. <laughs> but the more we're involved in each other's life, the more there is an option for division, the more there is an option for division. So as we come back, and we have to come back, we can't stay online forever. Unity is about being together in person. We need to be connected. And as we come back, we are going to find all the more this opportunity to put away our old self and to put on our new self in Christ, to live out our new identity. And we're going to fight against this unity. It's going to come. It's going to come to our church. People are going. You won't even realize that you're the one that is trying to divide. And it will come. We need to be ready for it. And we need to call it out early. Let me pray. Father, we see so clearly So clearly, Lord, that your purpose, your plan was to show yourself off to the world through a people, a people that firstly love you and from that love they look like you. They put on your characteristics, the characteristics we saw in Christ. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that that we would not hide things, sweep things away, sit in our bitterness, gossip, and slander, but hate it. God, I pray that we would hate it, despise that. Put on humility. Gentleness, patience, love, and by the Spirit, Lord, confront one another, bear with one another. However long it takes, Lord, be a servant, a slave to all, so that the world may see why you sent Christ. Let's see it, Lord, and we can preach it once they've seen it. God, we love you. We give you praise, glory, honour. Always for you, in Jesus' name. Amen.